Greetings, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track basis pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. It feels like ages since we've actually recorded one of these. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I guess it's um, it's uh, kudos for your strategy of making sure we've got enough recordings in the bank. So, uh, yeah, since we last spoke, I think we've had a couple of recordings, um, a couple of podcasts go out, including I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yes, which I... Which is going quite well. And, and, and it's pleased to see that, that a decent number of people are, are downloading and listening to these. Um, it would be great, of course, to get some audience reactions. So, dear listener, um, please do let us know. And, and I don't know if you want to drop in at this moment the ways in which people can get in touch. Oh, I can certainly do that. Yeah, uh, you can you can get a hold of us uh, at our email, which is uh, Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can also get a hold of my stuff at jgmacquarie.scott. Um, and we're on all the usual uh, podcast stuff. So yeah, anywhere you can find podcasts, basically, you can find us. So that's good. That's just in case people don't always make it to the end of the episode. Um, <laughs> and, and, so I've got the information now. It would be great to get some some feedback because I know there are a lot of um, a lot of Beatles podcasts out there, and uh, you know it'd be nice to know um, what you like about what we're doing. So um, yeah, be good to hear from you, folks. It really would be, and it's also nice to be able to say when you say "dear listener," you're not talking in the singular anymore, which is uh, which is quite well, nice as well. Although actually, that's I'd say not that I'm you know not a broadcaster, but that's that's a broadcasting technique. I think that, that people get told on radio is is that you're you know you have to pretend that you're talking to just one person, um, then that way you sort of come across with a little bit more warmth and empathy. Anyway, um, enough of this. Yes. highbrow kind of discussion shall we move on to today's song let's Give move on my to the... <laughs> a, yeah yeah the job's in the bag um yes let's move on shall we um it's um yeah it's if i fell this week um lovely what do you think of if, if i fell um yeah yeah this could be another one of those short ones where i say yeah yeah actually it's, it's quite a nice song um and um yeah yeah, it's quite a nice song. That's one of the things about um, you know doing it this way is that we come across um, some really well-written songs, and bearing in mind how quickly they were written um, and then rehearsed and recorded, um, you know the the quality of the output is is just quite incredible. It really is, and particularly for this being a Lennon song as well. I mean, most of Hard Day's Night is Lennon anyway, uh, but it's one of those songs which definitely allows us to see a kind of more, I don't want to say a McCartney-esque side to Lennon, but it's an unusually tender song for, for him to write, it's even at this point in his career. And it's 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 really sweet. It's an absolutely lovely little song. Yeah, I suppose it's, um, you know, in, in terms of what we did last time, um, let's get rid of all the information that, that people ought to know about this. I suppose it's the, the cliche is, of course, that this is a, a McCartney-esque type song but written by Lennon, supposedly, just so he could prove that he could do it. Um, and, you know, it's fine in that respect. It's also, um, you know, relatively early on in the film, when the Beatles um, are in the, the studio. Um, and it, it's just kind of like a nice song. But what I find interesting about it is that 
although it's ballady, it's still got that little bit of Lennon self-pity in terms of the lyrics. There's still a comparison between partners. So, yeah, 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 you can love me, but, um, you know, this this other relationship, ooh, that wasn't quite so good. So he still can't help himself in that respect. Whether or not that's that's just subconscious, whether that's a deliberate thing, or whether that's him just coming up with some words that match the, the music, um, I think is is sort of left for, for speculation. Which I realise isn't a great thing, but for, for a podcast like this where we're meant to be doing the speculating, I'm saying <laughs> that everybody else, you can speculate, I'm not going to. Well, um, I don't know if I want to speculate too much, but I will, I will at least a little bit, which is... I think that there is an attempt in the lyric to write something which is just a little bit more sophisticated than, you know, I want to hold your hand or whatever, that, that kind of level of, of writing. Um, the, uh, the whole, that opening um, line, um, you know, because uh, I've been in love before and I find that love was more than just holding hands, suggests, you know, pushing into a slightly deeper approach to relationships than yeah I want to hold your hand or you know that kind of stuff so it's 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 about trying to explore a little bit more of the dimension of that kind of relationship I suppose I mean it's not a very long lyric so there's only a limited amount of mileage hence why I'm only speculating slightly in that but I do think there is some effort there to to kind of push it into slightly different kind of lyrical territory from from what we've been used to up to this stage and that figures because we've been talking about the evolution of the writing as we've been going through the albums and and i think that's quite uh quite a visible sort of representation of it at, at this point in hard day's night so your speculation is that referencing holding hands is a deliberate evolution from i want to hold your hand more than um, just holding hands the more is the key you're, issue you're, there yeah but you're, you're buying into the the mccartney um revisionist history saying oh well you know i was i was um um, a literature student at school and so therefore words really really interested us so you know look at all these puns you know you, okay you, you think it was a, a deliberate thing i don't know if i would go that far but i mean the idea that they're that the beatles are self-referential is hardly an extraordinary one it wouldn't at all surprise me if this was an early example of it, it it's certainly possible but even if you put that to one side I, ju- I just think it's that idea that yeah you're exploring more of a relationship that you know it's it's about slightly deeper than you know sort of standard teeny bopper fare again I don't want to lean too heavily on that but the idea that you have hurt pride that you have you know the pain of loss you have you know a, a bunch of stuff there which does slightly I mean, none of it is unique. None of it is is completely original, of course. But it is it is slightly expanding the kind of emotional palette that a song like this might have, and particularly yeah. again for Lennon, that's that's really the thing. He's he's not normally one to make himself sound that vulnerable. Well, he still makes himself sound a little bit vulnerable. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of interesting, you know. Um, but I suppose at least he's not sounding kind of bitter and twisted. Um, in in this one or indeed um too possessive i mean obviously we'll save that for side two of this album uh, that feeling very much returns doesn't it yes so, uh, very much i so. mean you could almost almost compare it to a um um a similar a very similar song that has a much more i suppose sentimental positive upbeat lyric um and that of course is um you know, 
nine minutes into the podcast, well, actually it's a little bit less than that, into the podcast, it's time to reference the Ruttles. Excellent. So at this point, dear producer JG, perhaps you could put in a, a Ruttles type um, um, sound effect here. Um, a Girl Like You is a perfectly lovely song. It is, it is very reminiscent of um, of this, although um, I had said in a in a previous episode, I was trying to work out which one it was really, so clearly I, I obviously say some things on here that make sense at the time and are utterly forgettable. Um, I did sort of suggest that there was an earlier song that sounded more like A Girl Like You than, than this one. I can't remember what it was now, but it, I mean, it's clearly an attempt to write a song like um, If I Fell. Um, and it's it's pretty successful um and it's very very pleasant it doesn't have the the uh, you know the um the edge that perhaps um you know lennon has even when lennon's being being nice um but but it really really works i, I know you have stronger feelings I, <laughs> than, than i do i sure do i, I love uh, with a girl like you i think it's uh, i think it's glorious i think um when it comes to the early ruttles kind of stuff it it's one of the best examples um and i think it's i think it's successful for exactly the same reason that if i fell is which i think it comes across as very sweet uh, very endearing and very genuine and that's you know one of the great things about the ruttles you know there's so much love uh, for the source material that just shines through. Um, but it's also a little bit more than that as well. And one of the things about uh, If I Fell is that there are a lot of chord changes in it. Uh, not a lot of chords, but a lot of chord changes. It's it's constantly shifting. If you if you try and play it, it's, it's actually, for such a simple sounding song, it's quite difficult because it just never stops. It's, ve- it's very restless as far as the chords go. And that's something that uh, with a girl like you replicates. It does exactly the same thing, um, uh, but it doesn't do it as I was going to say. I suppose it, I was going to say it doesn't do it as pastiche. I suppose it is pastiche by its very nature, um, but it, it doesn't feel that way. It just comes across as incredibly well executed. And yeah, of course, I mean it's the Ruttles that goes without saying. But still, you know, not every not every song is is equal. Um, but I think kind of with a girl like you is. I don't know that I would say it's better than if i fell but i think it might be as good and i mean that as a compliment to if i fell uh, which i i do really like as a song um but with a girl like you is is just great it's it's just very sweet and genuine and lovely in exactly the same way that, that if i fell is so i i would say in in terms of i i think you've perhaps identified a reason why it's it's not up there with if i fell with you know almost for that realizing it in that it's it's not as complex um, there aren't as many layers to it as there are with If I Fell. Um, and, and I think part of that is because it would presumably, you know, if you go by Neil Innes' story, have been written in a hurry because he had to write a lot of songs in a very short space of time. But of course, he didn't really have the same um, kind of people to play these songs off against that John Lennon had, for example. Um, so the complexity in If I Fell is much more evident. But also, you know, been listening to, to both songs quite a lot recently, and there is a huge difference in the arrangement, in the, um, you know, the in the playing, and also in the production. And and again, you know, the, the Ruttles was a much cheaper um, production all round, and it was obviously done more quickly. But 
you know, as a song, as a piece of writing, there are similarities. And you could maybe have some sort of sympathy for that argument. But I think when you put in the, the whole package, you just have to go, man, it's the Beatles and the Beatles. It's not just John Lennon writing a song and thinking, oh, well, did he mean this or did he mean that? But it's McCartney on bass. It's, you know, Ringo's, you know, really very straightforward, but very effective drumming on this. And it's, well, whatever George is doing. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, George Martin's production as well. Um, and the harmonies, which, of course, the Ruttles, you know, can't do because it's pretty much all Neil Inner singing. So um, as much as I love the Ruttles, I just think that the, the more... The more we think about it, the more we talk about it, the more like a boring old muso I might get and go, oh, yeah, man, but it's it's the Beatles. Um, and when it comes to, to the old top trumps, you know, the Beatles trump everyone every single time, don't they? Well, yeah, and I'm not going to I'm not going to judge Neil Ellis for not being George Martin, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that's the you know, it's, that's all that's all perfectly fair. I mean, yeah. One of the one of the nice things about the way that the uh, instrumentation is recorded for with I Fell is that there is that sense of space in the song. And again, I think it's one of the reasons you see how skilled or one of the ways I should say that you see how skilled George Martin is as an arranger as well as a producer, because there's lots of space in this song and that really adds to the atmospherics of it. If there's one thing I definitely do agree with you on when it comes to with a girl like you, it's quite full. You know, there's a lot of instrumentation on it. There's not a lot of space, um, which is is clearly you know different from with a, uh, if I fell. And that if I fell is just it's it's so wonderfully arranged. It's it's very simple. It's very sparse, but it draws a lot of its power from that sparseness. And and it's it's just really well put together. I mean, you joke about you know what's George Harrison doing, but I mean, I think the answer to that is all that's needed. You know, he's not really prominent in this, but this yeah. this isn't a song that calls for it anymore. He's doing a bit of 12 string. That's fine. That's all this song needs. And it's that restraint, that space that the song has that really lets uh, really lets it resonate. Right. So I'm now going to do what's uh, what's called in the business a, a segue. Excellent. OK, watch this. Um, there's, there's, another, there's another reason why, um, you know, I'm not quite so hot on the uh, on the Rockins version. And that's because in the film, um, um, a girl like you is at the Royal Variety performance, and of course you've got Neil Innes as the Lennon-esque character, uh, making a joke about um, dedicating to a very special lady in the audience, Barry's mom, and then invites you know Dirk McQuickly to sing this song. And of course it's blatantly obvious that Dirk McQuickly, i.e. Eric Idle, is miming, and that it's Neil Innes's voice. Um, and you know I, I, I sort of find it always find it a little bit odd that um, Eric Idle, who is both a proficient musician and and singer, whatever you think about his singing voice, doesn't actually do any of the playing. He's quite obviously miming for the bass <laughs> all the way through. Also miming um, in terms of the vocals. So that doesn't quite work for me. And, and this is the link. Hold on, folks, of course, because remember, this song is from the film. Um, I, I nearly said um um a hard day's rut but um but there you go um and and actually what i find really endearing about the this section of the film is obviously for the first two songs we've spoken about the sections of the film that the songs relate to um this one you know ringo's being a bit of a grump ringo is upset and actually john starts singing the song 
to Ringo. It's like he's serenading Ringo. So yeah, okay, so if I fell, but you can sort of see there's that tongue-in-cheek element where it's just like a nice song to sing to someone. And then much like um, our, our previous song, um, what was a previous song, JG? I've, I've forgotten for the moment. There you go. There's some professional broadcasting. <laughs> uh, should have known better, which seems like an ironic title. <laughs> there you go. I, I, I got it. I did get it. Um, you know, you notice how in the early part of that song, um, they're playing cards. And then once you get into the song, it is the performance. So here, John is kind of mock serenading Ringo. But then once they get into the performance it, or into the song, it is a performance. So it's really actually quite clever. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole old Dick Lester early pop video kind of thing. But he really did think about the way in which the songs were presented in, in, in a fascinating way that is, you know, superior to a lot of what followed. Yeah, absolutely. Firstly, before we go on, let me praise you for your segue. That was truly excellent work there. And I would very much like to commend you for your, your skill and ability in that area. Thank, thank goodness we're a professional thank podcast. You. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. But unsurprisingly, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I think the presentation of this song in the movie is just, just so charming. And the, it, the problem is when you're talking about the movie is it's so hard not to just run out of, of, of synonyms for charming, because that's what the whole thing is. Everything about it is charming. But of all the charming things that happen in the movie, this is one of the most charming. I'm going to have to stop using the C word now. But it is. It's just delightful. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a sweet little moment. And it just very eloquently captures what the song does. And then, as you say, it segues into that performance, which is also just, just lovely to see. It's such a... It's such an accomplished piece of filmmaking for something that was knocked off in a ridiculously kind of quick and kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say slipshod, that's not fair at all, but but it's such a uh, such a quick and hasty fashion, let's say. Um, and yet it really looks like all the time in the world has been spent of it to compose those, seat, uh, those shots, uh, to make it work with the music, to kind of figure everything out. And yet we know that's not what it was like. We know that this was just like a super quick feature, knock it out, make your money, move on. And yet nothing about the movie really implies that when you watch it and this is one of the sequences that i think is is an absolute standout there it's just it's just gorgeous mm. yeah that's that's one of those um those moments in the discussion where you know we both agree and actually i've got nowhere to go with that <laughs> okay well so, it's probably yes. time to to go for another segue um and and um, oh, have you got one? Well, I was gonna. It's not really a segue. I'm just gonna talk about something else, really. So, if you want to call that a segue, sure. Let's go with that. Okay, hang on. Let's, let's try this then. So, okay. so that moment in, in the film turns into you know a, a sort of a full on performance. Huh? The Beatles did play this quite a lot live. There you go. You oh, see, that was quite okay. <laughs> However, I, I don't know if you've you've seen or listened to any of the recordings of them playing this live. They do play it at a much faster tempo. Although it's worth pointing out that even for a ballad, it's actually still quite up tempo and and pacey a song. But of course, they played it even faster, um, you know, on stage as though they recognised the fact it was a popular song, but just couldn't wait to get through it and reduce it from whatever two and a half minutes to to two. Yeah, it. I, I have seen the live performances, and I, I, I've, I feel they lack something a little bit, and I think it that that it's that thing about them being played a little bit faster. It, it, it strips the subtlety out of the song. 
and that's that yeah. kind of undermines it a little bit. So it, the song is fine live. I don't. I wouldn't want to say that it was bad, but it's functional. It, it it's there. It it get you know. It, I mean, I was gonna say it does. It's played fast, but it is slowing down from the the up tempo numbers. Um, but it's just yeah. it, it just feels like it's functional. It's there in the set list. Bloody bloody blah. Okay, on to the next one. It it it, it definitely loses something in translation. Yeah, it, it reminded me of um um, I, and there's another Beatles podcast. Can you believe it? There's more than one Beatles podcast. I find that hard to believe. Um, but carry on. I know it's it's one that looks in particular at uh, production, and and actually, um, it was uh, the episode I was listening to was discussing George Harrison's "Isn't It a Pity," um, from his amazing triple album. Anyway, um, and and I love that. So I love that album. Oh yeah. Um, but of course, it was talking about the fact that it was offered to the Beatles, um, you know, reasonably early. But then when you listen to it, you think it's so not a Beatles song because as good as it is, it's just slower than anything the Beatles would ever have recorded. You know, and, and so you can sort of see why John and Paul might have thought, Do you know what, this, this isn't really for us. So, you know, even the ballads are are pacey, you know, um, possible exception i suppose well could you call julia a ballad i suppose it's a ballad type song yeah um but you know you sort of think martha my dear and michelle and um you know and all the ones that end up on um revolver um you know there's not anything that really slows the tempo down in my life um mm, yeah possibly Mm, might be the other exception that proves the rule but yeah, but I mean, as a, as a general point, I do agree with you. And I think, I mean, I love Isn't It a Pity. It's such an amazing song. I utterly adore it. Uh, but I can understand, I mean, not only in terms of its speed, but in terms of its content, it doesn't quite fit. Could you imagine Isn't It a Pity on a Hard Day's Night? I, I don't know. I mean, I love that song, but, you know, time and a place. And I don't well, think... I mean, I couldn't, even, I couldn't picture it on any, of the, <laughs> you know, even the, the, the later albums. It just... just... You know, it just doesn't work. I wouldn't even take Maxwell Silverhammer off uh, Abbey Road for it. I like even Maxwell though it, it, it's, it's, yeah, isn't it? Pity is is such a, a a more substantial and interesting song. It just wouldn't work, or would it? There you go. Um, email and tweet anyway. Never mind. Um, yeah. So yeah, I suppose the other thing that sort of sticks out to me is is that there are a ridiculous number of covers of this song and there are an awful lot of them that were in 65 and, and 66 and then it sort of tails off it's quite interesting looking at that secondhand songs website because it then seems as though you know people have kind of forgotten about that era of the beatles until you then get into the 2000s when the number of covers seem to start up again but predominantly they're just kind of formulaic and um they're just attempts by people to show how they can harmonize and harmonize in a way that's basically the same as as the Beatles. So it's like, oh yeah, a couple of acoustic guitars and some harmonies and away we go. Um, The one notable exception um, was um, Julie Covington, who I think was um, singer of uh, Don't Cry For Me Argentina from Evita. I mean, she may have been in the original stage production, I think. And, and what I thought was interesting about that was that, um, I mean, there's one point in uh, Lennon's vocal delivery in this that, that kind of jars with me, and that's in that sort of introduction 
where he sort of goes quite sharply from help to me to help me understand help me understand um and yet actually when um julie covington sings it as a, a stage performer you know someone who's trained it's a lot smoother the transition is is, is actually quite exquisite at that stage in a way that, that lennon um, for all his skills and abilities isn't able to to convey um, and the other one for me um that, that made me have a little chuckle that, that was in some way different was uh, um chet atkins <laughs> oh man a, con- a country cover um uh, but uh, I suppose the the thing about um, Chet Atkins doing it is is actually it's from an album called Chet Picks the Beatles, and there's there's a pun there. Uh, see if you can work out what that is. Thanks, um, Chet. But you know, but then I don't necessarily think that Chet Atkins was was being that fussy about some of his material because a couple of years later he recorded a um, a cover of Yakety Sax called uh, Play for the Pun Yakety Axe. Oh yes. <laughs> there you go. Actually, his Beatles album was quite successful uh, compared to some of his other recordings, uh, and that probably says more about the uh, the material. Um, but in the same way, I suppose that George Martin sort of assumed that um, perhaps some of the orchestration um, uh, records that he put out would have been perhaps a little bit more successful than than they ended up being. You know, there there was a point, I suppose, at which. Um, some of these things would have hit some kind of saturation point, but we're not there yet. No, no, not not quite yet. It's a funny one, if I fell. It's it's not. I, I don't know if it's one that really screams for much in the way of cover versions. It's not. It's it's, it's sort of. I hate to say, it, oh, it's fine the way it is, but kind of that. It's I I don't know. It, it's yeah. it's it's fine. Um, I it, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, doesn't necessarily need an awful lot more than it's got. And you know, when you hear anyone else playing this song, and here this is my attempt at a segue here. Um, so please, please Ooh, get, okay. get 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 your applause ready. Um, when you hear please. when you when you hear other people um, playing this song, uh, it it does kind of it really helps to reinforce the the skill with which the Beatles play. Um, not in terms necessarily of uh, virtuosity, uh, but certainly just in terms of. Well, I mean, I, me- I mentioned restraint earlier on, and that's that's part of it. Uh, but it's just just everything about the way that they actually play the song really pushes it to that next level. There's there's some perfectly good cover versions of this song out there, but they're all just fine. Whereas they don't have that extra that extra thing that the Beatles version has, and I think a lot of that does come down to their their playing. They are, I mean, it's pointless to point out how good musicians they are. That goes without saying. But it's not about it's not about being flash. In fact, this song is about the exact opposite of being flash. But that's exactly what this song needs. I I don't think there's there's um, many occasions in in their catalogue where they attempt virtuosity over uh, the song where it becomes a more important thing than the song everything is done to support and embellish the song um so i, I know you said it goes without saying but i'm gonna say it they are phenomenal musicians but everything is in the interest of the song and 
you know, just for, for a little bit of context, um, dear listener, we, we sort of, um, you know, implied earlier that, of course, we do record these um, in advance and we're recording this um, mid-ish January and, and you know, the news this week um, was announced that David Crosby had died and it's only a couple of weeks on, I think, since um, Christine McVie died. And, and these are people who are understandably lauded for their very long and successful careers. And they are, they were clearly very good at what they do, but I'm not sure that what they do or did was always for the benefit of the song. And the, the thing that always gets mentioned with Christine McVie is, is Songbird. And Songbird's perfectly lovely, but it's not great melody in there yeah. it's it's nice the sentiments are nice um and you can see why it would have worked at a fleetwood mac concert because it, it sort of changes the tone it takes away from the you know the bombast and and the, the various uh, other elements that, that the band put on um and but if you go back through david crosby's back catalogue that you know his his song writing wasn't about um melody you know the the bands that he played in um particularly sort of the later stages of his time with um the birds and it's the eagles then with the birds uh and then with crosby stills and nash crosby stills nash and young they were sort of embellished by the virtuosity of either the players or of the the harmonies and you sort of strip it away and you think is is there a is there a tune i can hum there will that tune rattle around in my head or does it just give me that sort of you know nice emotional uplift to hear that that wonderful harmony um and and as as great as some of their involvement was with with um these these acts and they you know clearly talented um you know passionate people brilliant performers so on and so forth i just think when it comes to it the beatles not them out of the park when it comes to just the basics of songwriting melody um and then instrumentation arrangement and and the playing as, as a package it's phenomenal and and even a mid-range song like if i fell lingers in the memory as as a tune um i suppose the other thing that, that some people um are, are kind of lauded for are the lyrics as well there are people who supposedly write these these great lyrics and it's deep and meaningful, but they forget about the tune. It, with the Beatles, it doesn't really matter. You can buy into the, the elements of, of the lyrics if you like, but everything else in the package, certainly at this stage of their career, is so spot on that it just absolutely beats everything else that's out there. And some people will get good. You know, the Kinks will produce some amazing songs. The Stones have some fantastic singles. But the the depth and the breadth, breadth, breadth. There you go. There's there's something for for the outtakes of <laughs> uh, the people's work is is just a reminder that um, if anyone ever tells you that they're overrated, always you know refer back to Danny Baker's line. Actually, they're probably the most underrated band in the world. We just do not appreciate just how good they are. And it's become a bit of a cliche, but I think it happens to be true. Um, you know anyway rest in peace and all of that um yeah so you know you had great careers but let's face it you weren't the beatles no i mean that is true of literally every other act of the planet so that's 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 fair enough but i mean yeah. I, I like 
I think particularly what you're saying about everything is everything is subservient to the song. I think that's really the most the most important point. You know, if everything is there to support the architecture of the basic song and even, you know, early days, but, you know, even early uh, like George Harrison songs or, or Ringo songs, the same thing can be seen. It's not something which is just a Lennon McCartney thing. It is always because it's always for the betterment of the group. It's not about the individual song. It's not necessarily about the individual person who's putting it forward, but it's about the betterment of the group and doing that every single time for every single song on every single album and every single single. That's that's the difference. It's that level of effort which goes into absolutely everything. And at this stage, there's just there's nobody nobody in the 60s that can that can touch them on that that's why they're such an outstanding group that's why they stand apart from the pack at this point and you know the the playing the 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 skill the musicianship all of that it's all great you know george harrison is obviously going to go on to be one of the you know greatest guitar players of all time he's probably not in 1963 1964 um that's not an insult but he's still learning he's still he's still developing a skill as as they all are and that developmental process is one of the things which makes the Beatles such a fascinating group to follow, such a fascinating group to, to, to spend time with. But even at this stage, again, as I said earlier, like all he's doing in this is a 12 string, but that's all he needs. It's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a demerit that that's what he's doing in this song. If anything, it's the exact opposite. It's precisely what's needed here. And, and that in support of the song is for me, that's what I love about the bands that I love. That's the thing that matters most. Not showing off, not being flashing. You know, I can appreciate virtuosity as much as anybody, of course. But that's not ultimately the thing that really matters to me. You know, I, I, my guitar heroes aren't Jimi Hendrix and, and Eric Clapton. They're, they're uh, you know, Peter Buck and David Byrne. They're, they're not people who are necessarily these big flash virtuosos, but they're the people who are doing the right thing for the song. And again, like If I Fell is such a, a perfect example of that, just to pull it back to the song we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, but, it, but it really is. It's, it's not flashy. It's not showing off. It's just a very sincere, gentle, lovely little song that has exactly what it needs. Johnny Marr. Okay, that's what I say on that. So bearing in mind, we've, we've just lauded the Beatles as being really, really, really good. Uh, ironically, um, I'm then going to say um, six out of ten for if I fell. Okay, <laughs> that's a surprisingly low mark. Would you like to justify that in any shape or form? Um, well, I, I've, I've given, uh, but you know my feelings on this ratings thing in general. That it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a daft exercise. That's why. Uh, that's why it's so much fun. <laughs> I've given a hard day's night and I should have known better seven out of 10. And this isn't as good a song as them. I've given this boy six out of 10. And I'd say this is as memorable as this boy. So, um, you know, it's, it's nothing. Um, it, it's nothing more than, than just that really. Um, okay. I like it. Um, but then please, you know, to qualify folks, um remember that uh six out of ten for the Beatles would not equate to uh, say if we did this about um I don't know Bachman Turner over overdrive and I gave one of no I'm definitely not gonna do that. Um, so I gave one of <laughs> That's correct. six out of ten. That doesn't mean it's as good as if I fell. That's just six out of ten, with ten being the best Batman Turner overdrive song. Um, you know, and obviously a ten out of ten for the Beatles is gonna be a better anyway you know where i'm going with that so um yeah six 
Grading on a curve, I think, is the expression you're looking for. But okay, six is fine. <laughs> um, I'm oh, I'm going to go for six and a half. Um, and not just to annoy you with a half point. <laughs> um, it's great. I mean, I, I, I also gave a hard day's night and I should have known better. Seven and seven. I don't think it's as good as either of those two songs, but I do really appreciate the craftsmanship that went into this. And six feels a bit miserly to me. So I'm going to go with six and a half. Okay. Good. That, that sounds like, um, uh, it uh, does indeed. Say, I'm sorry. going to I'm going to repeat all the stuff we said at the start of the episode as well about getting in touch because you know we want people to get in touch. Please get in touch. It would be really lovely to hear from you. Okay. I also I'm just going to going to play my phone for a couple of minutes then while you do that. That's okay. Lovely. Yes, that's absolutely fine. You you occupy yourself in whatever way you feel is best. Oh, but before I do that, I also want. It turns out we have a few listeners in the Ukraine. I have no idea why, but I want to give our listeners in the Ukraine a shout out. Hello, listeners in the Ukraine. Please listen. Hello, Ukraine. Yeah. Oh, and actually, I, I forgot I was going to launch a competition. I, I mentioned this to our many, many, many followers on Twitter. I could probably spend the next 30 seconds naming each and every one of them. Um, folks, if you can work out which episode we forgot to publish, bearing in mind <laughs> we're doing a chronological podcast, we forgot to publish one. We've recorded it. It's in the bank. Um, we forgot to publish it. Um, send us um, on a postcard uh, your your suggestions to BBC Television Centre W1A1AA, I think was the old television centre address from memory. Um, or alternatively, use any of the communication methods that JG is about to mention, um, and we will uh, send you an autographed copy of <laughs> it's right. It's incredibly generous of you to say that we forgot to post it, when what you mean is I forgot to post it. <laughs> or maybe I can maybe I can blame the hosting thing. Maybe I tried and it got swallowed by the internet. Let's there'll, there'll be some excuse I can come up with that doesn't necessarily mean the blame falls on my shoulders. You you do all the hard work, so I'm trying to share some of the blame. You do all the hard work. I just turn up and waffle. Okay, well that's fine. Our waffling days are over for this episode, though. So uh, you can contact us by email. We are Beatlesstuffology uh, at gmail.com. We are on Twitter, as Andrew mentioned. We are Beatles underscore ology. Uh, please follow us. It would be nice to have some followers. Uh, you can find more of my writing at... <laughs> any. Um, you, you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot. Also, please check out my other podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, where a noob and an expert go through the original Star Trek series episode by episode. Please also like, rate, and review our podcast on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Next week, we will be happy just to dance with you. But until then... Keep listening.